And on the three syndications, we held them for about 1.8 years. Okay. And our uh, average annual return was 41%. That's, in, that's ridiculous. Today, we have special guest Duke Ong. He's an aging and an investor. He owns his own brokerage and runs a small team here in Hawaii. And he's also a serious multifamily syndicator. He's a general partner in 13 multifamily deals and has already exited five of them. Currently has $65 million assets under management. Welcome to the show, Duke. All right. Thank you for having me. I'm so stoked to get to talk with you and just kind of see what you've done because I feel like you. a lot of people can relate to you. You were... Do a, a teacher, a high school teacher before you started doing real estate, right? Is that right? Correct. I taught high school math at Kaiser High School for so 15 years. What, I mean, so what, I mean, walk us through that transition. What were you doing? Like, how did you transition from being a teacher and then also then eventually turning into like a full-time real estate investor? Well, while I was teaching, mm-hmm. I had already started investing um, and becoming an agent. Okay. Uh, and then I essentially took the commissions from my agent sales okay. uh, to invest in real estate. Um, because I knew that I didn't want to teach forever. And okay. like most people, I want to build the type of generational wealth yeah. that will free me from the bondage of working at W2. <laughs> okay. um, I didn't want to just be in the rat race forever. So uh, I realized that real estate is one of the fastest ways to get there. And especially multifamily real estate uh, because of the economies of scale. How did you, I mean, were, was there like an aha moment like when you realized that real estate was your path? Because you can go through the stock market. There's a lot of different ways to invest, right? What made you choose real estate over everything else? Well, just from research, uh, mm-hmm. devoured tons of books, uh, mm-hmm. podcasts like Bigger Pockets, um, and just consumed a lot of content okay. and started to put that into um, action by doing small deals at first and then scaling up from there. Uh, one of my first deals was a three unit in Indianapolis. Okay. It was a $75,000 uh, <laughs> triplex that uh, I quickly sold uh, within a little over a year for a decent profit. Okay. But part of the reason I sold was because I didn't like the subpar property management that's available at that level. So you, were, you bought it in Indianapolis while living in Hawaii? Correct. So how did you feel comfortable like investing in something like so far away? Did you actually go and visit the property? How did you like how did you like manage all of that? Yeah, I was on a um tour to okay. look at turnkey properties essentially. Okay. Uh and yeah, decided to partner with one of the guys on the tour to mm-hmm, buy it. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the strategies that I've been employing ever since the beginning is to partner with other investors mm-hmm. in order to uh mitigate risk. Yeah. And also stretch your down payment further. Yeah, awesome. So when you're working as a teacher, how did you manage being a teacher and a real estate agent at the same time? I always hear people say that you got to be a full-time agent whenever you become like a real estate agent. I think you just got to work more hours. <laughs> but uh, also most uh, clients mm-hmm. are also working W-2s and have jobs. Mm, so they true. aren't available during the day to go see showings either. Mm. So most people are available nights and weekends so that tends to work out okay so you're kind of your client base with people who also have w-2s and so when they want to stay houses maybe like after the school's over or on the weekends when you guys are both free anyway that's what you're saying yep that's right okay okay and then like what was like the um like was it pretty lucrative is like did you make a lot did you make more money as a teacher or as an agent during that time oh i definitely make way more as an agent oh, than really? as a teacher um because well you just don't make that much as a teacher mm-hmm. in general <laughs> But uh, the dollar per hour uh, working as an agent is also 
orders of magnitude higher than as a teacher. So why you? I mean, so your full time job as a teacher, you you're actually making more money as an agent part time, basically. How many hours a week was that? Like, are you working as an agent? Uh, it's hard to pinpoint because it varies depending yeah, yeah. on the it's, deals. Yeah, it's just like and... a fluctual, and it, it's a blurred line between work and and playing because like part of being an agent is networking and just like meeting new people, and so sometimes it's actual work, but sometimes you're just having fun meeting friends, right? So yeah, but I'd, I'd say probably at least twenty hours. Okay, okay. And then so like we're 20 hours working as an agent, eventually like you're kind of building up, you like saving money on the side or kind of building up like a down payment for your first deal or how did you actually get started in like the multifamily space? Well, so as you took over uh, the mortgage and title of a single family home in Anaheim for okay. my family, okay, uh, because at that point they, in 2008, they got into financial issues mm. and they needed help. Uh, so I helped them took it over, and then since I took it over, the equity position has increased, mm-hmm. uh, and then I just took the equity out via refinance and various HELOCs over the years in order to invest in uh, that first deal. Okay, so that was that was the Indianapolis deal. Correct. So I mean, like that. I mean, it's it's. I love the story because you come from very humble beginnings, right? You're working as a teacher. You're you're kind of moonlighting as a real estate agent on the side. Then you're you got involved in like a, some property that was slowly building wealth over time. You eventually, you took that equity and you're able to do like your first deal in Indianapolis for seventy five thousand dollars, right? Yeah, and then my second deal uh, was actually a single family in Pittsburgh that okay. also partnered with a local realtor there. Okay. Uh, and the way I did that one was pretty interesting because uh, for the down payment, I took out a bunch of credit cards. Okay. And I took <laughs> out the cash advances and you know paid the cash advance fee or whatever uh, what? in order to do the down payment. Essentially, we bought it cash. Was this like, was this like a um, like a like I know some of the credit cards are like zero percent for like twelve months. Was that was yeah yeah, yeah. and then so. you used to have to pay the balance transfer fee yeah yeah. Uh, but just consolidate a bunch of those in okay. order to buy that one cash wow. initially, uh, and then later we put uh, debt on it. Okay. Um. So it was like a, you wanted you needed the cash and the credit cards to to buy the house cash, and then after you can refinance it to like a long term loan afterwards. Yep. And then okay. since then we've sold it. Okay. But, okay. Um, that was pretty risky strategy because <laughs> essentially I was betting on the fact that I could make enough commissions from yeah. my agent business in order to pay off those credit cards. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was kind of like you're, you're at cash advancing yourself as a, as an agent to take out those, those little, like, kind of like mini loans on the credit cards then. Yep. Okay. Super interesting. So you did your first deal, your second deal. And then how many units was the second deal? Just a single family. Okay. Okay. And then when it was a point where you, because I know like you joined the team of a few other investors to kind of start doing multifamily syndications, how did that transition or how did that process look like? Yeah, so in 2019, I partnered with three other guys to do a 52 unit in Saginaw, okay. Michigan, uh, C class neighborhood, working class, you know, not okay. the not the greatest area, um, but we managed to um, sell that since. And made a handsome profit for our investors, well, our JV partners. Mm-hmm. Um, but the important thing about that deal is that it gave us the experience to mm-hmm. then do our first syndication deal, I which see. was a 48 unit in El Paso. So the first one was not a syndication, it was just a joint, uh, joint venture with some other people. Yep. And then how did you find these partners like to, to do the deal with? Well, uh, through real estate uh, meetups and okay. networking. Um, Vince, one of the main guys I work with, uh, I actually represented him uh, on a purchase in okay. Kapolei when he moved here. 
So you guys were like, I mean, just like local meetups over here. You just like hanging out and you guys got and talking. You saw you had some common, um, some common goals and some different like, skill sets. Is that kind of how it all came together? Yeah, essentially, Vince is just trying to find people that were <laughs> um, interested and willing to partner on okay. this deal that he had found. And um, yeah, we were just basically putting the capital in. And at that point, we didn't really have all the roles figured out mm -hmm. and all the structures and systems. Uh, but eventually, we kind of um, realized, like, you know, who's going to be doing what. Mm -hmm. And then even though that was a JV, so technically, like, everyone's really supposed to be participating and yeah. working in it. Yeah. It turned out to be mostly me and Vince that okay. did the work. So, like, we were um, eventually taking out those roles for our syndication deals as well. What kind of roles are involved? Like, let's say you're, you're putting a deal together. Like, there's, like, defining the deal and there's actually running the deal, right? Like, what are the different roles that you're seeing, like, that you and Vince took over that were, like, that are important? Well, so Vince does the operational side, mm -hmm. um, whereas I handle the finance and investors. Okay. Okay. So in the JV deal, there's no investor relations to worry about. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. in syndications, investor relations is an entire mm -hmm. department. Um, so right now, that's mainly what I'm heading is finance and investor relations. Okay. So, I mean, like, well, like, can you break down like all the different roles? Like, let's say somebody wants to buy a multifamily or do like a bigger deal. What are the different kinds of like roles total that are needed in like a, a deal like that? Okay. So other than operations... Finance. When operations, you mean, is that like managing the property and like the renovations or the rentals? Is that what that is? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So operations entails, yeah, managing the property manager okay. um, as the asset manager, mm -hmm. um, managing CapEx um, budgets mm -hmm. okay. and, you know, running the actual value add program. Like making sure you're calling the property manager, hey, like, are you guys working on working today? Did you get any tenants? Those kind of things. So checking up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, ensuring that the reports are updated. And mm -hmm. um, so we have these like post check meetings every week um, mm -hmm. that we're you know looking for certain KPIs from the property manager got it, and got it. so the asset manager is responsible for ensuring that yeah, we're hitting yeah, the KPIs yeah. and then your role was managing like the the funds like the maybe like the spreadsheets and like the talking to the people who are investing like as like limited partners is that kind of like your role yeah yeah i mean so on the finance side it's um kind of overseeing like mm -hmm. cash management treasury management mm -hmm. um you know ensuring the balances, like we have positive balances. That's a huge <laughs> thing. Um, and then on the investor side, it's the whole back end of setting up the investor portal, mm -hmm. um, handling all the SEC legal documents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then just communication with investors as far as reports. So we sent out um, monthly webinar updates okay. for our deals for the first 12 months okay. and quarterly reports um, okay. every quarter. Um, and K1s every year. So all that stuff. So, I mean, when you guys were kind of just kind of forming the partnership, it was kind of like the Avengers, right? We're like the one guy's like, hey, I have like this deal. I have this plan. Let's bring together all the people who can like kind of help me to kind of make, take this to completion. How did it end up where like you and I guess Vince were doing like the, the more jury of the law? Like how did like that, that actually like, you know what I mean? Like happen? Was it organic? Was it like intentional? How did that, that go come about? Yeah, it's pretty organic. Because uh, at first we just kind of assign tasks and then mm -hmm. you know just start doing the tasks mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. then after a while you realize you know like who's good at what and mm -hmm, who can mm -hmm. do things more efficiently or just willing to yeah, stay up yeah. super late to do it <laughs> and like you know there were like back in those days many um late night zoom calls between yeah. me and Vince going over underwriting yeah um yeah for hours just pouring over spreadsheets so um 
stuff like that. I feel like there's always like a, a like when you start as an investor, there's like a point where people are paying their dues where like, you're just, you're just grinding. You're spending like a ton of time just analyzing deals or like talking through things. And then that's really where you grow as an investor. Your experience level kind of like skyrockets. And I think like the, just seeing where you guys are today is obviously you guys have probably done tons of like sleepless nights or tons of hours of just actually talking through and analyzing the deals where now like the ability and the experience you have today, like far outweighs where you were as an investor when you first started right yeah i mean uh, you just got to put in the time <laughs> but i mean i think that's the whole point of investing is mm-hmm. to convert active like mm-hmm. effort mm-hmm. into passive yeah so yeah. that you're no longer having to put in the grind yeah, in order yeah. to make the money the thing is but you have to pay it somewhere right so like i think if you pay it up front like you put in all the work up front eventually you're going to get a passive like results but if you kind of like are passive in the beginning you're going to always have to continue to put in the active results because you're never going to build up that passive like income or the passive like business that you're trying to create right yeah and then i think um some people kind of do it in the wrong order where they're already looking for investment opportunities uh-huh. uh without haven't made the money. I think yeah, the first yeah. step is you got to make the money like via the active means mm-hmm. um, and then start saving. And then, yeah, yeah. you know, once you have that like set aside, then you have an investing problem. Like a but cash reserves. You mean like put like actually have like a generate some income in the very beginning. It's very hard to start with like absolutely zero dollars, right? I mean, it's possible, but it's, it's not like, it's not really like, I guess, um, uh, responsible, I guess, to, to do it like that. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's all these like, you know, strategies out there for mm. no or um, low money down yeah, and yeah. all that stuff. Um, but, you know, there's a downside to it, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think if you can uh, combine multiple things, like, mm-hmm. you know, the low down payment with a partner and like yeah, all these different yeah, things, yeah. like, that can help you kind of get started and mm-hmm. do that first one because that's always the hardest one. Was there any kind of like lessons you've learned from just partnering with different people as far as like what to look for or what not to look for when you're trying to find partners for your deals? Uh, I think it's important to find partners that are going to be able to, you know, complement your weaknesses Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and just be self-aware and like realize what you're actually strong at and Mm -hmm. be honest with that. And then also to be clear as far as communication and, um, lanes and yeah, roles yeah. and responsibilities and we like to manage everything in google so we have like google sheets mm-hmm, for everything mm-hmm. uh where i we- love google sheets by the way our team we're, our team uses google sheets too and we love it just the collaboration that can happen right it's all in the cloud you can update at the same time you can see what changes people are making you can there's like version history you can see like who screwed up i <laughs> think in the last week i'm like what the and then like you're who who can i blame for like the mess up and stuff right so yeah everything's trackable <laughs> yeah yeah no i mean it's it's key to have everything written down mm-hmm. and you know clearly delineated what do you think is like maybe like your superpower like i mean like i feel like you're you're like one of like the i guess smartest or most um like you get you just get stuff done like from ever since i've known you, you've always been so responsive like anytime we ask like ask or need anything from you you always like you're instantaneous as far as like getting back to us and i feel like you're a team member that gets like a lot of stuff done like very quickly what do you think like what's what's your superpower that you would uh would say like you're yeah, what's your superpower, would you say? Uh, I think it's analysis and problem solving mm-hmm. and being able to find an efficient path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm given a task, I don't just like do it blindly. Mm-hmm. I always try to think, well, first of all, can I delegate it to my VA? <laughs> like, okay. And then if it's repeating, then I need to create a system, a playbook okay. for it okay. so that it can be done over and over. 
And what kind of triggers like would lead to this request coming again? <laughs> and so I kind of think about those things. Um, and it, you know, if it's like really like the only I can do it, like sensitive yeah, financial yeah. information, then yeah, like I'll just do it immediately. <laughs> and yeah, and you know, just the various productivity tools to keep track of all the what, tasks. What kind of tools do you guys use like productivity wise? Asana is one okay. tool for project management that we use <laughs> as a team. Um, so we run that across um, all of our businesses. Um, and Slack for communication. We love Slack too. It's so, it's so, yeah, Slack is awesome. You mentioned playbooks. Do you guys like create playbooks for like your, your virtual assistants or your team members? What do you guys like, write playbooks in? Uh, so I, I just make Google Docs. Okay. Um, so I have like a master playbook that has links to all the various okay. playbooks. Okay. And basically, as soon as I can think of tasks that are repetitive, <laughs> then I try to make a playbook for it. Um, but the key is that I don't necessarily write all the playbooks. I mm -hmm. wrote some of the first ones, but then actually assigned that as a task to the mm -hmm. VA to write the playbook. Mm -hmm. And then what I do is I go over the tasks in Zoom, uh, whether live with the VA or mm -hmm. just record it in Zoom so that they have a screen share yeah. that they can refer back to I and they can take screenshots of that video I in see. order to make the playbook. Oh, wow. So, so your, your time is like really efficient where you're actually like working through the problem with your virtual assistant. Your virtual assistant has a recording of it and they can rewatch it and then create a playbook based on the recording that you just did with them. So yep. I love it, man. I might have to steal some of these ideas from you. So <laughs> Yeah, and I think this time is the most valuable resource mm -hmm. and that, that's kind of the whole point of all this wealth building. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because, yeah, I guess actually my primary goal isn't necessarily to maximize my net worth, yeah, but yeah. it's to maximize net fulfillment. Yeah. Um, a la like Bill that. Perkins, that was zero kind of philosophy. Ex explain that to me. Ah, so uh, in the West, in the materialistic kind of culture <laughs> we live in, okay. most people are trying to maximize net worth blindly, okay. like without yeah. any kind of reason necessarily. Just get rich, it. basically. We want to have a nice house and a nice car, right? We... Yeah, I just want to see that number, right? It's, yeah. it's just a scoreboard. Uh, but... To me, that is not the entire point. Like money is a tool mm -hmm. in order to do the things that you want, yeah, to yeah. have the experiences um, that you really want in life. And so there's kind of an optimal point in your life that you can do certain things. So if you just put off everything until you're old, then you won't be able to do the things that you know, mm -hmm. wanted to when you were young. It's like travel or like spend time with family, all the different things like that. Like as you get older, it's like less, like it's harder to do or it's like less enjoyable and stuff. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm a father of a one and a three year old. Okay. So, um, right now they're young and they're not yeah. going to be that age again. So yeah, yeah. I really, uh, value spending time with them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and being there for them. And so that's kind of the point mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. like financial freedom and, building wealth is yeah. to be able to spend time the way that you want to. I love that. I mean, like talk a little bit more about that. Like that, I think that's like a really crucial point that just to kind of like to sit, I mean, sit in is like, I think a lot of people get swept up in financial freedom and like they want like a, they want to ride in a jet, they want to drive a Lambo, they want to do all these things that are just seem flashy because that was, that's kind of like what Instagram calls as success, right? But then the reality is, it's just like the day to day, like the time you get to spend with your family, with your wife, with your kids or things you enjoy doing, whether it's like golf or pickleball or like shooting guns or whatever it is that like kind of like fits your fancy is just being able to maximize your life, you know, so. Yeah, and and in Bill Perkins' book, mm -hmm. um, there's like these different buckets in your life okay. that you can only do certain things. Like, let's say in your 30s, okay. you can go climb a mountain like 
Kilimanjaro. <laughs> okay. Um, but you wouldn't be able to do that when you're 80. Yeah. So true. you should do it when you're your 30s. Yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. the best time to do it. <laughs> um, but if you just you know build wealth forever yeah, and you never yeah, spend yeah. it down, yeah, then you're gonna be at a point where like oh you have all this money mm-hmm. but full of regrets, right? Not having you know taken that trip. That's a super good point. So what at what point do you think is like it's because there's a balance, right? Like you can't just be spending like on credit cards, just going on vacations and enjoying your life, but not building wealth. But there's also, you can't just be building wealth and not being enjoying it at the same time. How do you strike that balance of like building wealth, but also like living your best life as you're doing it? Well, I think uh, you just need to build wealth as fast as possible. Okay. Like that, that's the solution because, well, I mean, that's how Bill yeah, Perkins yeah. is. He's okay, a trader, okay. he's an energy okay. trader. So he made a lot of money trading. Okay, right? okay. Um, and then now he's living the life, right? Okay. Like, <laughs> but that's the correct order. He built the wealth first. So you hyper focus and just like try to make as much money as possible. Then over to like that, after you kind of have that first jump, now you can actually invest that or like turn into passive income or kind of ride the coattails of like the, the work you've done in that first, like, let's say three or five years that you did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. and you know, you can always inflate your lifestyle mm-hmm. and then it's just a never ending race. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it's important to keep it in perspective mm-hmm. and, you know, not just keep buying more and more expensive toys <laughs> yeah. as your income and wealth increases. Yeah. Uh, but also just to, you know, remember mm-hmm. the whole point of doing mm-hmm. all that. I love it. I love it. I think one of the other things you guys are doing with uh, the multifamily investing is you guys are actively investing in these leagues, multifamily buildings, but you're also having an opportunity for people to invest passively. So like a guy like myself, let's say like I have some extra cash lying around, I can actually invest with you. You're going to make my money grow or give me a monthly amount. And then like we, now I can live my best life based on the hard work that you guys are doing, right? So, yep. Yeah. So um, of the five deals that we've exited, Mm -hmm. Two of them were JVs, three were syndications. Mm-hmm. And on the three syndications, we held them for about 1.8 years. Okay. And our uh, average annual return was 41%. That's in, that's ridiculous. Can, can you break down, maybe break down like the numbers are like the best deal? Uh, so Green Desert was a light tech deal in El Paso. Okay. That uh, we bought that at 1.935. Was so that, I mean, it's a multifamily? Yeah, 48 a, units. 48 units, um, okay. It was through our property manager's connection. Okay. His cousin was a lawyer that had the connection to the light tech okay. people. So we were able to get that deal okay. off market at a good basis. And then uh, within two years, we sold it uh, at 2.9. So you bought uh, it for 1.9. In two years, you sold it for 2.9. Yep. Did you put in like a renovation or was it? Yeah, like yeah. We, we, we did our, our standard. Mm-hmm. I mean, not as much as some of the other properties yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's uh-huh. light tech. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's kind of limitations to how much you can push rents <laughs> um, because of the light tech restrictions. <laughs> and despite the fact that it's still in the light tech, um, you know, it will eventually come out. And that's where the big pop will be for the next buyer. <laughs> because once the light tech restrictions are over, then becomes market rate and then it's valued differently. I see, I see. Um, but yeah, no, on, on that deal, our passive investors, let's say you invested 100 grand, we would have returned hundred and three thousand dollars on top of your hundred grand. So if you put so in a hundred grand, you've gotten two hundred grand basically in two years and just under two years. Yep. Which is an amazing like return on that. And they didn't do anything any work where you guys are doing all the work. Yeah, completely passive. Yep. That's not I mean that I mean it, sign me up for those deals every time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, so what is like the um I guess the key to like having like a, a deal like that successful? Well I think it has to do with the execution um mm-hmm. of 
or operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the acquisition is mm-hmm. the most important. Like the basics, Buying me right? at the right price, yeah. you mean, so. Yeah, being able to get at the right price. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the, our timing. We were able to exit it mm-hmm. before the whole rates market, going so up. The markets were like, were still good. Like the, it was a, a booming market. So you guys had, yeah, you time. That's why you exited in one and a half years as opposed to like three or five years because the market conditions were right. Yeah, and then as GPs, that's our responsibility. So GPs, can you explain that a little bit? Uh, general partners. So okay. we're on the active side. Okay. So we manage the assets and mm. make the day-to-day decisions. Uh-huh. Uh, we're always trying to acquire. So we're always underwriting and okay. looking for deals. Um, so we're always valuing the market. Mm-hmm. So if the opportunity comes, then we'll look to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if we can hit our projections earlier yeah, because yeah. that juices the internal rate of return. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is so a measure there, of... There's a, lot, there's a lot of numbers or acronyms you're throwing around over here. So like the GP is a general partner, right? So that means basically on a deal, you guys are the ones who are managing and finding and doing all the work. And then there's the LPs, which are the limited partners where they're providing the funding and then actually, and they get like a return for like the part of, like, or part of the profit split, right? That's right, yeah. And then internal rate of return, can you explain explain what that is? Yeah, so internal rate of return is a measure that's typically used in commercial real estate that mm-hmm. measures the rate of return when time value of money is taken into consideration. Sounds very complex. <laughs> so, um, so if you think about when you get the money, okay. the earlier you get the money, yeah. the higher the IRR. Okay. So if you had to wait until the sale to get your money, okay. then the IRR would be lower. But yeah. if you got some of that through the hold via cash mm-hmm. flow, then your IRR would increase. Because you can already put that money that you got back to work again, right? So that's yep. kind of the thought process behind that. Yeah. So it just measures the speed at which mm-hmm. you get your money back. So it's like the return and the speed kind of combined together into like one metric, which is internal rate of return or IRR. Yeah, I mean, and the formula is much more complicated. Yeah, it has yeah, to do yeah. With that's like, like, that's like the, the super basic kind of like a high level like idea of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, so. that, that's basically the bottom line is the faster you get your money, the higher mm-hmm. the IR. Yeah, yeah, I got you, I got you. Yeah, so I mean, like the, what are you guys doing now as far as like that? You said you have like eight deals going on right now. Are you guys buying new deals? How are you sourcing new deals? What, what's like the, what does like your operation look like right now? Yeah, so um, today we just got under contract to sell one of those eight okay um, Bay Street. okay congratulations uh, thank you yeah it's um in berlin maryland okay um and we are also under contract to buy another one in dfw okay uh, that's supposed to close mid-december okay amazing and so are these do you think the returns would be like similar to the, the ones in the past or because the market is a lot different than it is like back then right though well yeah i mean and of course our past returns do not they take future yeah, returns. yeah 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 um but yeah, I mean, we generally project for about a 2x equity multiple mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. five years. That's okay, kind of our okay. target for underwriting. Okay. So, I mean, like when you guys, when the when the people sign up for those deals that they got like almost like a 40 something percent return, what were your projections on the front end when people were signing up for that? The same, the 2x equity. So, like a 20% average return, but then like in actuality, you guys return a 40, 40 plus percent return, even though like the they're projected at a 20 something percent. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's how we like to underwrite is conservatively mm-hmm. um, so that we have room to outperform those targets. Mm-hmm. I love it. I, I love the strategy. So, let's let's take a look back into like to your story. Like the, so you started off as a teacher, you slowly, you became an agent and then now you're a multifamily syndicator. Are you still doing real estate um, as being uh, on the agent side? Yep. Yeah. And um, in fact, I have a listing in IEA that 
just went on a contract recently, okay. a loan assumption. So it's going to take like three plus months to close. <laughs> really? So that like the, yeah, talk, talk to me about the loan assumption. Cause I think there's a, I've been seeing more of those lately in the market where it's such a hard time, a hard um, time to sell because like the interest rates are so high, but then you can actually assume on someone else's loan. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so I've actually closed another deal in mm -hmm. Kailua that was a loan assumption mm -hmm. uh, where it represented a seller. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you just have to be really patient because it takes a long time. The lender has no motivation to <laughs> approve your paperwork because they don't get any more money. Like yeah, it's the same yeah. loan. So also like when the, when the loan assumption happens, the lender doesn't get any points or any like profit from it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's minimal fees okay, and stuff. Okay. Um, and, you know, they're stuck with the same low rate yeah, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that the previous uh, buyer had. And, yeah, it's just tricky and it takes a lot of patience mm -hmm. and all the parties need to cooperate and mm -hmm. got to keep on top of everyone. Um, but it's possible um, and it becomes more and more attractive in a higher rate environment, mm -hmm. especially with raised sub three that some people Why have. would someone want to sell on a, with a summable loan? Like, what, what benefit is that to the seller? Well, it allows them to attract more buyers mm -hmm. that are um, willing and able to take over that mm -hmm. loan. And for the seller, it, it's not as ideal as just mm -hmm. a clean sale Straight, without like, it. Like, like um, but if you have no other options and that's the best mm -hmm. offer, then that's the best so option. So are you representing the buyer or the seller in this transaction? Uh, so in, in both that past one that closed mm -hmm. and the current one in escrow, I represented the seller. Okay. And then what's the interest rate that the seller has on their on their mortgage right now? It's like two point eight seven five. <laughs> That's ridiculous, man. <laughs> yeah. So you can buy a house. You can still buy a house now with two point eight seven five as long as the sellers are allowing you to assume the loan that they have. Well, the, the other tricky thing is you have to have the down payment. Okay. The, the difference gap. between like yeah. the the mortgage balance and like the price of the house, right? So yeah. So I mean that could be substantial depending on the deal. Mm -hmm. um, and in that first example, the buyers actually came in with a second position to cover the gap. So they okay, didn't have okay. to come in with the entire down payment. I they see, they I had see. a second position to support some of that gap. Oh, wow. So how did they come with a, a second position? I mean, the Freedom Mortgage, the first lien holder allowed they're, they're them allowed to. to yeah. have, like, so they had two loans. They took over the, the, the first assumable and then they got a second mortgage or a HELOC or something on it to, to cover the difference. And then so they, they, can, they basically can come in with like a less amount of down payment just to purchase the house. Yeah. So I mean, that, that, that could be a viable strategy for buyers out there. Oh, that's um, really interesting. Can you, I mean, like, I think we, we glanced over that really quickly. Can you just break that down a little bit more methodically on how that whole process works? Yeah. So, for example, let's say the uh, loan to value. Let's is, use like numbers. Like, so like the, there's a house for sale for in Kailua for a million dollars, but nobody wants to like that. So, yeah. So, like, let's, let's, let's start. Yeah. Let's say a million dollars. Um, the loan balance is 800000 Okay, okay. At like 3%. Okay. And so a buyer can come in, let's say they only have hundred grand instead okay. of 200 grand. Okay. They want to buy it for a million. So they could go assume the $800,000 loan from the first lien holder mm -hmm. and then take a second position loan at 100000 okay. let's say, to bring it up to 90% loan to value and then come in with 100000 down to cover the rest of the gap. That means that's me. So like yeah, the eight hundred thousand would be at three percent, and then the second position hundred thousand would be at like, like the eight seven or eight percent that yeah. is today. So like the majority of your mortgage is still gonna be like a lower percent, but you have like a small percentage that's actually like a little bit higher percentage. Yeah, and then you you might get like a blended rate of mm -hmm. I don't know four percent or yeah, something, yeah, but yeah. still much better than the current rates. Yeah, like the last seven or eight, right? So I mean, that, I feel like that's a strategy that like people should actively try and pursue like in this market, just because it seems like it's a 
it's like this this is like the perfect market to actually apply those strategies and so if they're aware of that then like that's something that they can they can do today so yeah and it, it's, it's tricky because you really have to find that like perfect situation where the yeah. seller is willing to do it because there's a lot of work and, on there in this why because like the they got to go through the process on the the paperwork is going to be like a longer close for them etc and so yeah mm, interesting so i mean like you, you also have a small brokerage that you run and some agents like how is like how is that going for you so far that's good it's just new startup so mm. we're just starting out we're recruiting and building our mm. um agent base and the thing that makes us different is we are trying to turn agents into investors. Okay. And we want to give them the blueprint, hence the okay. name Blueprint Real Estate Advisors, is the okay. name of brokerage, um, which to me is first you earn commissions. Okay. So that's considered active income. And then you take that active income. And you know once you are able to support yourself and all that, then you invest in deals that can produce passive losses, okay. like our multiple syndications. Yeah. Um, and then once you rack up the passive losses, because you, you could qualify for a real estate professional status, which mm-hmm. check with your CPA on how to do all that, but that's a special, um, designation in your taxes that allow you to take the passive losses from multifamily syndication deals, for example, to offset active income, mm-hmm. um, from your commissions. Yeah. So essentially it's a way to pay as little taxes as possible so you're kind of pairing both worlds together like the active on the on the real estate commission side investing in like the passive on the syndication side and eventually like there you're trying to turn them into investors where they're moving more from like the agent to more investor like over time is that kind of like the thought process yeah and then you know if you're good at being an agent then my advice is just keep selling houses <laughs> because that's like one of the highest dollar per hour jobs <laughs> out there, <laughs> especially in a market like Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, you know, don't just blow your commissions on toys. <laughs> like, you know, put it into assets that can yeah. then produce both <laughs> passive income and passive losses. <laughs> and passive losses in this case are paper losses, the <laughs> depreciation, um, which just on paper, like on your taxes, will show as a negative, which allows you to offset mm-hmm. other income and then not have to pay taxes on that income. I kind of like, it's almost like the Duke Ong blueprint because like, it's exactly <laughs> like your, your path, right? So start as an agent, make some income and then eventually like do some like limited partners and eventually like, become more of a, more active. But it's just like, it's like a, it's a proven way of building wealth and like with a practical steps, right? Like that you don't have to start, you can still have a job. You can be an agent on the side, start making some commissions, put away some, on some investments and eventually maybe go full-time agent after you become enough, enough success. But like, it's a, it's a very practical way to kind of get and start in real estate investing without a lot of the risks that like it might seem. Yeah. And then this strategy can work well if you have a spouse, who mm-hmm. has a high income job, like mm-hmm. doctor, lawyer, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, because if you filed married jointly, then yeah. you can then use one spouse's real estate professional status mm-hmm. to offset the other's W-2 mm-hmm. income as long as you have enough passive losses. Yeah, so you yeah. have to keep participating in deals that can produce yeah, these yeah, passive yeah. losses. Super, super interesting. Do you guys um, have like webinars or things where you get to teach more about these kind of things? Uh, well, we have a monthly meetup, okay. um, Honolulu Multifamily and more. Okay. Um, we're on Facebook and we, yeah, we have every month. So okay. that's one place to find us. And then we also have a podcast. 
uh, the Cashflow Project podcast where we yeah, you guys have a podcast too. I think that I. I think I was actually a guest on there like way back then. I yeah, you're one of our first guests, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so, I mean, just running a podcast, how has that been? Has it been helpful for you guys? What has been that been like in like, the whole podcast process? Um, I think it's good. I mean, I think in this current age of capital raising, mm-hmm. um, creating content and mm-hmm. content marketing is like a given. Like it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's just, you just have to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you skip it, you're going to fall behind. Um, so it's just all part of the normal way of marketing in the modern age. I feel, I feel like. like social media and just like like the digital marketing, like you're saying, has played play such a big role in our company and our team as far as just being able to like do more deals and like find more partners and things. And like, I think it's like a, the big thing is people don't realize how much work it is, I think. So because like you see like the highlights and everything from what like the, the content, but there's so many hours of like the filming, the editing, like the pulling out, like having the team on the doing all of the, the captioning, all the different things. And so it's super like helpful, but it's also like you have to be prepared for like the amount of work that's going to be involved when you're kind of starting out on the social media and the whole digital landscape. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's one of those things that like you can't really see the fruit of your labor yeah. immediately yeah. because um, one thing I've learned is that you're, you're not really creating the content for like the likes or the shares or whatever mm-hmm. on that particular piece of content. What you're trying to do is just build an audience. Mm-hmm. And then with that audience, then you can do stuff. Mm. That's a really, really good point. I think real estate investing in general is like that, where there's so much work that's done in the front end that like doesn't pay off and there's there's no immediate like gratification. So like like let's say you're analyzing deals or you're putting in offers, there's so much effort and work that's done there, but then like the gratification is like way down the line. And then like you get like it's like it's nothing, 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 boom, then you get a huge sum. But it's like it's actually all these like small steps that were, like got nothing that actually led to that that big profit or that big like um thing windfall like down the line, right? Very similar to like social media where like you're putting like you're putting out content, putting out content, and then maybe like nothing, nothing, okay, you get one deal or like like well content, 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 you get one partner. And so like it's kind of like a you have to be have the faith that what you're doing is actually working and then make sure that like you're consistent with it over a long period of time in order to kind of see the fruits of all the work that you've done. Yeah, and then you never know where investors could come from. Mm-hmm. Um so just kind of putting yourself out there, putting mm-hmm. the content out there. Um, sometimes just randomly, like through various other connections, uh-huh, like people uh-huh. will find you and like, you know, oh, they've heard of you through yeah, this or yeah. that. And then, um, that's all part of the trust building that's mm-hmm. necessary, um, in the capital raising business. So, so true. So uh, some, let's say somebody who's just kind of brand new, they're just starting out. They want to kind of get started in real estate investing. What kind of advice would you give to somebody like this? Well, first, just get educated. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many free resources mm-hmm. um, out there. But secondly, to partner, um, go to meetups, go mm-hmm. network, shake hands, meet as many people as you can in your local community uh, and try to learn from them mm-hmm. firsthand and mm-hmm. then find partners because partnering is one of the best ways I find to kind of get over that hump Yeah, because... Yeah. Uh, you know, some things that you're not willing to do or not good at, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you can find a partner that will do that, then you'll move much faster as yeah, a team. Yeah. So when you're trying to find partners, are you looking for somebody who's more experienced than you, less experienced, or what are you what are you looking for when you're trying to find a partner? I think you should find someone that's like around the same level. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of, you know, on that path as well. Mm-hmm. Like let's say you're just starting out, then, you know, find someone that's also kind of just starting out. Obviously, it's, it's better if you can find someone willing to partner with you with more mm-hmm. experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that may not be feasible because, you know, like... Depending on what you bring to the table, you mean. Yeah, because so, yeah. um, 
like, well, let's like, let's say you brought a good deal. Mm-hmm. Then that, that would always get you seated at the table. Yeah. Or yeah. if you can raise capital, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. those kind of things. Um, but other than that, like, why would an experienced investor want to partner with a newbie? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's got to be some. So yeah. So like, let's so. say like there's a new investor who wants to partner with Duke. What would he need or he or she need to bring to the table for you to say like, hey, this makes sense for me to want to partner with you? Well, on our deals, which are mostly mm. syndications, yeah. we we take limited partners. So, so okay, we take passive okay. investors. So um, as long as we have some kind of relationship, um, mm-hmm. we can bring the uh, investors on. But as far as getting on the GP, that's much harder. Mm-hmm. In order to do that, you have to be able to bring something else to the table yeah, yeah. Um, other than just your cash. Yeah, like, for yeah, example, yeah. some kind of skill set um, mm-hmm. or, you know, being able to raise capital. Mm-hmm. Super, super interesting. So where are you guys kind of going for as far as just like the um, the the future? The, what is the future of... What is, the, what is the name of you guys' company actually, by the way? Oh, so um, Tri-City Equity Group, Tri-City Equity Group is yeah. our um, you know, real estate private equity firm. Okay. Um, our focus right now is on the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Okay. okay. Um, we currently have four assets and under contract to buy the fifth one. Wait, so you have... You have four assets in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and you're trying to buy a, fi- a fifth one over there. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And then, so we have four that are not in DFW okay. that we're trying to sell. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, our, so you guys really like DFW. Yeah. Because what we discovered is previously, we were like going a mile wide, just going mm. to all these different markets. Because I know you said you had one in Maryland, you had one in like uh, El Paso and like the... Well, so we've sold all of our El Paso assets. Okay. okay. Um, so... Currently, the other four are in um, Roanoke, Virginia area, okay. um, Berlin, Maryland, and Johnson City, Tennessee. Okay, okay. Um, and we are trying to sell all four of them. Okay, okay. Um, so that we can focus on just DFW because we're setting up a property management company. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it's already set up. We've, we've been operating it on two of our assets. Mm-hmm. That, and then we're going to eventually take over um, the other two and this new property. Um, and with vertical integration, we can control the whole process. What is vertical integration? Can you just explain what that, what that ah, term so means? It just means to self-manage, to, okay. to manage using our own property management company okay. instead of using a third party. Property so we're just company. saying like, I think in a, in a real estate deal, there's a lot of pieces and parts, right? There's like, you find the deal, you manage it. Like, let's say you pay for the contractors, you're doing all these different things, but the, the more kind of like pieces that you can put under the same, same umbrella that like you guys own and operate, that's kind of like how you're like making a vertical integration with all the different parts and pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the motivation for that was that mm-hmm. we found third-party property managers to generally be subpar. Okay. And they're better than like small multifamily or single families. Okay. Like they're just atrocious <laughs> at that level, but okay. still okay. like there's like, you know, small little petty theft, um, okay. just fraud, like just like negligence, all these yeah, little yeah. things we find. Um, so like really the only way to solve that is to do it Just do yourself. I got yeah, you. And to control the whole process. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with that, we'll be able to pass the savings on, mm-hmm. to, you know, down to the bottom line, to the NOI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is what matters for investors. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing. Well, I mean, like, so, I mean, so awesome to kind of hear your story. And I especially like your take on life as far as just building wealth for time as opposed to just building your net worth. I think that's like a super huge, like, takeaway for myself personally. But if people want to find more about you or connect with you, where can they do so? Also, uh, tricityequity.com okay. is um, the website for Tricity Equity. And then uh, blueprintrea.com is the website for Blue- okay. Blueprint Real Estate Advisors. 
Um, so if there are any um, agents out there that are looking for a different path mm-hmm. to uh, build wealth and you know not just chase those commission checks forever, mm-hmm. um, please contact me. Um, and as far as investing, uh, we're always looking for passive investors. So if you're interested in that, then um, also let me know. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks, thanks for jumping on the show today. Super appreciate you, Duke. All right. Thanks for having me.